Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, we've got an OG on the podcast. OG from a founder perspective, also an OG protocol. This is Rune Christensen from MakerDAO. What did we cover? What were some of the highlights for you? Yeah, this is actually, I think, two podcasts in one. So the first half of this show is all about a tweet thread that Arun put out that captured both your and mine attention. And it was a technical argument about why things will likely collapse down to one single ecosystem. Uh, and so where previously, like, maximalist arguments have generally been one of mostly emotion and people speaking their bags, Rune does a fantastic job of actually articulating a technical rationale for why there will likely only just be one layer one blockchain that will succeed, at least with regards to smart contract platforms that have DeFi on them. So he goes through the game theory about why DeFi apps might actually align themselves with one specific chain in lieu of... I'm going to say it, David, because he said it. It's like an ETH maximalist take, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, we also go through a section with Room about like, well, we can strip away the names of these things and just talk about the concept of layer 1A, layer 1B, layer 1C. One has greater levels of adoption, one has minority levels of adoption. But yeah, if you want to add like names onto these things, like Rune is saying, well... For MakerDAO, putting MakerDAO first and being a MakerDAO maximalist, it actually game theoretically makes sense to commit to one chain and one chain only. And so Rune takes us through that argument, which I find personally, I find very compelling. Um, and that, that's the first half of the show. Second half of the show, we go through Rune's uh, recent proposal on the MakerDAO governance forums about uh, making DAI, quote unquote, clean money and pointing MakerDAO's um abilities of being a capital generation facility, a credit facility, towards things that combat climate change and having MakerDAO being climate aligned and branding DAI as this clean money that when you use DAI, you are actually helping combat climate change down the line. And the mechanisms for that are simply allowing capital to be directed and MakerDAO to fund things like solar farms or sustainable energy farms or things that actually help us fight climate change. And this has been one of the big bull cases for crypto at large. Uh, you know, back in 2009, 10, 11, 12, we had no idea how this would actually get done. But we did understand that crypto can help coordinate against problems that are larger than nation states. And to this day, nation states continually to illustrate their lack of competency with being able to tackle problems that are bigger than themselves. Uh, and so, it's very, very cool that we're seeing a, a DeFi app on Ethereum take up the mantle of being the thing, the coordinating body that can actually go after climate change. Because like Rune says, so many people are just in denial about it or they've given up hope. Like he said in the show, it's gone from climate change denialism, as in just being blind about it, to climate change doomerism, saying, well, we know it's real, but like it's too late to do anything about it. And so it's optimistic. It's awesome to see something in the crypto world take the climate change problem head on. 
or at least that's what Rune has proposed. And so we go through his proposal and all the details around that. Yeah, absolutely. So bankless listeners, this is like a, a two part meal for you. I think the first meal is where we talk about why crypto will have a layer one power law winner and why Rune actually thinks that might be Ethereum and is probably going to be Ethereum, which is an interesting take. And the second course, I think counteracts a lot of FUD that we've heard just in general, in the mainstream, let's call it, you know, maybe senators, politicians, regulators, and just like mainstream institutional news that crypto is bad for the environment. Well, Rune is proposing that Maker become good for the environment. Every time you buy die or own die, that is actually a plus one for reducing environmental externalities and helping climate change. So super fascinating conversations. Again, if you want to take this in two parts, that's probably a recommended way to digest it. <laughs> These are all tied together though, David, in one way, which right. is the future of Maker. What is the future of this OG DeFi protocol that's been with us mm -hmm. since inception. And, you know, one, the answer seems to be Ethereum and layer twos. And the second seems to be this clean money narrative. At least that is what Rune is proposing. But what does he get to control? He's just another governor on the governance forums now that the Maker Foundation is decentralized. That's a fascinating conversation in and of itself. You are definitely going to enjoy this one with Rune Christensen. Before we get to the conversation, we wanna thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. The era of proof of stake is upon us. Proof-of-stake systems like Ethereum, Terra, and Solana allow the industry to move away from the hot, loud, and wasteful proof-of-work systems and return back to a cottage industry of individual stakers and individual validators. And that is what we need to make this industry stay decentralized. Individuals must play their part in crypto network validation. And that is what Lido is here to do. Lido makes staking accessible to everyone at the click of a button. By delegating your stake to Lido's network of nodes, you can access the yield offered by proof of stake systems and claim your share of the network transaction rewards. Do you have 32 ETH and want to stake it to Ethereum, but running a node sounds intimidating? Or maybe you have less than 32 ETH and you need to pool your ETH with others so you can access staking yields. Lido offers a solution for both. Simply go to Lido.fi, choose which assets you want to stake, and deposit them to the Lido Validating Network. Lido is working to make sure proof of stake stays as decentralized as possible, and is committed to decentralizing its own validating network to eventually become a completely permissionless protocol. So if you want to stake your ETH, Terra, or Sol, and get liquidity on your stake, go to Lido.fi to get started. 
Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce you to our next guest. This is Rune Christensen. He is the founder of MakerDAO. He was building crypto before Ethereum was even a thing. And he started MakerDAO before DeFi was even a thing. MakerDAO has pioneered some of the most fundamental components of this industry, really the foundations of DeFi. When you think about a decentralized stablecoin, when you think about decentralized governance, when you think about DAOs, all of this started with MakerDAO back in 2016. It was actually my first love and my first fall down the DeFi rabbit hole as well. Um, so we're going to unpack a lot of these topics with uh, Rune. We're going to talk about some of his threads about layer one. We're also going to talk about the future of MakerDAO, how he sees it evolve into a green money type platform, a clean money type platform. There's so much to discuss on this episode. First, I just want to say, Rune, welcome to Bankless. You are an OG, sir. It's fantastic to have you. Really glad to be here. Yeah, I think it's going to be exciting. Okay, so I want to start with this question because, you know, you've been in crypto for a long time. I've been in crypto for a little bit. Some years in crypto feel exhausting, right? Some feel exhilarating. There are times in crypto I feel like super optimistic about the future and the direction we're headed. There's other times where I just feel like jaded, like I'm done with it. Like this short-term thinking and you know chasing after scams is too much for me. I wanna ask you, is that how you feel as well? Like do you ebb and flow between these things? And how are you feeling about crypto and DeFi right now? I think rather than sort of ebb and flow between it, I more like <laughs> have both feelings simultaneously at all times, I guess is the best way to describe it. You know, it's like, I mean, it's like that bell curve meme, right? You really got all extremes. You got so much of the the most sort of inspiring and amazing stuff you'll you'll ever see in your entire life, right? You'll you'll just re scroll through that on Twitter, coming from some uh, weird uh, avatars, and then at the same time, yeah, there's like the dark side of crypto as well, right? It's like the good, all the good comes with also an incredible amount of of bad and and frustration and scams and you know what do you even call that incentivized stupidity and all of these things that really you know it's frustrating that that's how it is but it, but you know i've over my many years in crypto and and you know my my origin as a, as a bitcoin maximalist back in the really early days i've just come to accept that that's just what it's like basically that's what this space is like and you just have to sort of accept and, and live with that and then i guess try to focus on the positives. So you've come to peace with things, then it sounds like you've kind of reached this state of Zen where you can live with both of these realities simultaneously and you don't let one get you down or the other get you like too excited. You're just like, you know, focused on the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you absolutely need to be able to, to do that too. I mean, work in a space and I guess especially to, to um, you know, build a project and, and try to really make something new, right? I mean, that's something that, it's sort of the, I mean, yeah, I remember just uh, some advice, uh, some some uh, wisdom on that topic, right? Is from, I think it's from Kane from Synthetics that uh, had this quote of something like, if you haven't been called a scam yet in crypto, you know, keep working hard, one day you'll make it, right? Because <laughs> that's a part of it, right? That there's, all, you know, that, that that's the thing about where the negativity, the sort of the, the bad side of crypto follows the, the good side of crypto and they're both fundamental and interconnected and uh, you have to be able to to deal with it or you'll just it's just not for you right you shouldn't be uh, shouldn't uh, give away your life force to to something uh, if you can't really handle it we absolutely close every single bankless episode with this line it's not for everyone 
right? <laughs> but thanks for joining us on the bankless journey. And I totally echo that crypto is not for everyone. It's an emotional roller coaster out there and things get absolutely crazy. But let's talk about something crazy that happened in a good way for Maker recently. Uh, you guys have been up to a lot of things this year, but something that more recently hit the headlines was Societe Generale, SG we'll call them, which is a massive French bank, a bank based in France. They just posted on MakerDAO's governance form, and apparently they want to inject $20 million in collateral in their bonds, you know, as part of the Maker Collateral platform. And this is so interesting to me. I want to hear the details from you about kind of the specifics of what they're trying to do and why. But what's super interesting to me is we've actually reached the point where the banks are coming to DeFi. How crazy is that? But tell us about this. What are they doing here? Why is this meaningful? What is kind of the bond that they're proposing injecting as collateral to back die? Yeah, I fully agree that the most the most sort of uh, shocking part of it is this like, what now the banks are coming to DeFi? It just seems like it seems a little too early almost, a little surreal. Um, but actually, for me, the thing that really was uh, crazy about this is I had just no idea it was in the works at all. You know, so that's really the sort of showcasing, um, you know, decentralized organization, right? So I was like, just super surprised to see it and just like, what? It's, I had to like Google it and be like, we're talking, is it a real bank, this thing? It's the third largest bank in France. That was like, you know, that was, uh, that was pretty mind blowing. Um, and, but yeah, so, so what's going on is that it's Societe Generalis, uh, <laughs> hard to pronounce, but it's their, um, the blockchain subsidiary, a sort of experimental subsidiary that's doing this kind of DeFi blockchain fintech, uh, you know, cutting edge innovation and experiments and, and trials with that kind of stuff. And so apparently uh, last year they created a, a tokenized bond. So there's been this bond living in Ethereum for quite a long time already. That's basically, yeah, like a some kind of, of real bond in a token format that's been done, I guess, under French law um, as an experiment, ultimately. And so now they've reached the point where they've, I guess, they're starting to look at, okay, we've created this thing, you know, can we actually go and use it in DeFi? Um, and so, so, so I guess then they uh, they've been in, in they've been working together with some of the the contributors, the decentralized contributors and maker that are being paid by the protocol to to um, support it. They've basically been working together with this uh, Societe Generalis um, blockchain subsidiary to um, yeah like prepare this proposal to Maker. Um, and and yeah and one of the things that's also sort of another mind blowing thing that also just really showcases the you know the incredible potential of DeFi and really this fundamental power of money Legos, right? Is that, so this token they made a year ago as an experiment, it's it's an ERC-20 token. And it just out of the box, it fits right into the standard maker collateral, um, you know, like like um, interface essentially, right? So like, there's not even any technical work in all of this. There's like the work, the, the, the sort of the barriers that were necessary to overcome for this were, I guess, basically the legal work on, on the bank's side in order to, to figure out whether they could do this uh, legally. And then the work of like writing the proposal. And that's actually, that's it, basically, um, which is kind of crazy, I think. 
Um, and then of course, when it comes to the actual, like the actual sort of the, um, the qualities of the collateral and, and, and how it's useful to make her, I mean, then I think one thing a lot of people immediately notice is that this bond they have, so it's a Euro denominated bond with a 0% interest rate, basically. So it's basically like a, like a bond that's not, that's not, um, it's like a five-year bond, right? So it's not super liquid, but it doesn't actually pay an interest rate. And that's of course, because in Europe, we've got some pretty serious negative interest rates going right now. So people will actually like, they're very happy to just get Euro at 0%. But of course that means that it's, it's going to be hard to charge a high stability fee, um, from, you know, by maker on, on this use when, when this bond is used as collateral. And I really think the role that, that, um, this kind of asset can play and also just generally this kind of collaboration between maker and these very, very large institutions that are sort of sitting in, in, um, you know, squarely in traditional finance with all of the scale and, and, and sort of interconnectedness that entails is really that they can provide liquidity to maker, right? So, so it's a way to basically have some of the maker and some of the die collateral um in in a form that is is somewhat similar to the role that usdc is playing right now and and uh, and paxos stablecoin as well where i see is like liquidity reserves that are sitting there ready to to uh, protect the peg and basically make die very liquid and very uh, useful um but then this would be a way to sort of take some of that exposure and move it over to, um, you know, to just like a completely different type of exposure, right? Instead of being to a stablecoin provider, it's with a, a huge bank and it's a different jurisdiction, right? It's, it's French, French law. Um, and I think that's quite desirable because I mean, that's one of the biggest topics in maker governance for well, very long time at this point is like, how do we diversify out of all of the USDC that's sitting there? Right. So I think that's, that's great. Um, and, and there, I mean, and that's a very clear sort of way that this is been a beneficial relationship that, that can be developed further. And, but I think the final thing that, you know, that's really the, what really matters of all of this is the precedent that it sets, right? I mean, one thing is the fact that you now have one of the world's largest banks and the, the third largest bank in France, they've gone through sort of the legal work of figuring out whether they can use their uh, tokenized assets as collateral and maker. And basically they're saying it can be done, right? I mean, that's why they've, they've gone so far and sort of staked their reputation on, on making this proposal, right? And that's really a huge deal. I mean, that's, it actually sets not, you know, obviously it's not a, a, a strong sort of legal precedent or anything like that it sets, right? It's not anything like there's been courts or, or you know, law firms making legal opinions and, and publicly stating that this is legal or anything like that. But, but the thing is just, I mean, the way that the, the world works is when you have something like a huge institution, like a bank, they're, you know, they're part of the system, right? Like they're, and, and, and it, it really matters when a part of the system starts to sort of reorient itself. It's gonna, it's, you know, that's going to impact how easy it is for other parts of the system to do the same thing. And uh, yeah, this is, I mean, I think this is, this is really, it really changes the landscape of um, which jurisdictions are friendly to DeFi. I mean, in particular, it, it makes France a lot more, like a, a, a much safer place, basically. But I actually also think it impacts the entire EU. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think that's a huge deal. And it means that it could be a lot easier for future interactions like this to happen. And maybe also not only would it have to be these kind of liquidity type of, of uh, 
collateral assets, but you could also have financial institutions offering other other kind of stuff for Maker to to use as collateral. Maybe stuff that actually provides, um, you know, has the potential to provide real stability fees as well. Rune, this isn't just some like lucky happenstance outcome because some bank chose to do some DeFi stuff. MakerDAO as an organization has had its sights on real world collateral for a long time now. And can you perhaps elaborate on the point as to why SG Bank chose MakerDAO instead of something like Compound or Aave or any of the other credit facilities in DeFi? What about MakerDAO, um, the organization there, made, was such a um, compelling place to submit a governance proposal for something like SG Bank? Why Maker? So I, I mean, I don't know because I wasn't a part of the process, really, so I can only guess. <laughs> but I would, I mean, I think the obviously the one thing to really note is just like the sort of the um, the age, the brand, the sort of the the history of makers being this sort of old conservative um, DeFi project, right? And 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 then there's the fact that we've had this focus, we've had this sort of um, you know, we've had a lot of communications and and uh, spend a lot of effort trying to educate and, and talk about, um, you know, the potential of DeFi interacting with the real world. Um, so I guess on, the, on that sort of front of sort of the, when it comes to like who would, you know, who would a, a huge conservative bank choose as their partner when taking their first steps into DeFi, I think it makes sense that, that they would go for Maker because that's kind of, that's exactly the kind of role that we've been setting ourselves up for for many, many years at this point. Um, but I think an even more sort of practical reason is because Maker is really the only place where you can go with something that pays, uh, you know, zero percent interest, and still get the uh, you know people that are perfectly happy to accept that, right? Because we're sitting with so much USDC, we're we're Maker is sort of the one place where risk really matters so much more than um, than the return, essentially, right? So so that's where a bank can really provide something that's that's um, useful, right? Like if they went to Compound and Aave, it just it wouldn't fit into the systems because you just there's just no place where people will park money to get zero percent in return, right? That that doesn't really work with the systems. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that you know it's also that that in because of Dai's interconnectedness and sort of existence across DeFi, it's also just a way for them ultimately to tap into sort of the whole ecosystem, right? Because by tapping into Dai, they kind of actually end up tapping into to activity across the whole the whole space. I think this is a massive step for DeFi. Maybe one of the biggest markers of, I guess, institutional adoption of a DeFi protocol that I've seen. Like, I mean, it's a real world bank, one of the largest in the world, posting on maker governance forms and submitting their collateral. Like, how crazy is that? How bizarre is that? Hard to imagine back in 2016, 2017, when you guys were first firing this whole thing up. So super cool step and really excited about it. Um, Rune, want to hit on this next topic, which is super interesting to me. I came across a thread that you published, I guess, a couple weeks ago. I felt like this thread hit really hard. This was a Twitter thread. And I'm just going to maybe summarize a few points, and then we'll get into them one by one. But it was kind of a criticism of the multi-chain future and also a criticism of the multi-sig future that a multi-chain future inevitably brings with its bridges. We're going to explain that a little bit more. 
but just some colorful language. You called multisigs a dumpster fire, right? Their use as bridges, at least, not in general, but their use as bridges from chain to chain. You also said, and this was very provocative, on a very long time scale, only one layer one can survive. Only one layer one can survive on a very long time scale. You didn't just tweet that, you had actually had justification like backing up why you think that might be the case. And then you also said game theoretically, um, DeFi protocols that are on Ethereum, they probably won't support other chains. It's almost like this version of, let's call it ETH maximalism light. I know we're not talking about toxic maximalism, but DeFi protocols on Ethereum will want to have their home chain be the winner. So I want to dig into these topics and maybe let's start with the first. Let's talk about multi-sigs, dumpster fire, duct tape. What is a multi-sig bridge? Can you define that for our listeners? And then why do you hate them so much? Yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly is a complicated topic, but actually I think the most important thing to really define first, and and that wasn't actually completely clear in, in the, you know, because of how these terms are used, right? But there's... There's a multi-chain, and then I guess there's what I'm what I'm really talking about, which is multi-L1. Um, and because uh, the, the distinction between like a chain and an L1, that's very significant, right? Because, and that's kind of the what I'm really talking about is L1s and, and what happens when you have multiple L1s. And it comes from this, the fundamental um, perspective that an L1 is essentially a blockchain that sort of goes out of its way to be independent and be and actually sort of not interconnect elsewhere, right? So, so um, if you look at all the different L1s, they're you know, in practice they're called ETH killers, right? And that's basically because they're positioning themselves, you know, as alternatives to Ethereum rather than as something that's fundamentally built to to synergize and to tap into Ethereum's network. Because I mean, and 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 I really would argue that in practice, like if you're just trying to make you just think coming from the perspective of you know i'm making i'm gonna make a blockchain i'm gonna make enable DeFi, i'm gonna make sort of a you know a block you know blockchain business blockchain uh, economic ecosystem and all these things right like the the number one thing you're always thinking about is like if you're trying to optimize for a good blockchain a, a good environment for people to build the main thing people care about which is why they're using DeFi and why they're using blockchain is is um you know interconnected essentially right like this this um interoperability right the synergy uh permissionless innovation money legos this is kind of the entire value proposition right so the the um you know so so there has to be like a really compelling reason to sort of deliberately exclude that which is then which then becomes this sort of this l1 narrative essentially right which is this idea that you can be a, a self-sovereign you know, uh, d- dominant blockchain essentially that can have its own ecosystem. So it's already like basically, you already from the beginning you're sort of defining these things as being separate, as being distinct, and being in in some form of of competition. Um, and it's then from that perspective that you can then draw this, you know, draw this um, conclusion of like the multi sigs and the the multi sig bridges. Because I mean, the basic idea is that. Um, when, like the reason why someone uses blockchain, well, it's because they want interoperability, but it's also because they want security, right? I mean, that's why they're not just going on some, you know, centralized 
whatever, right? Like some centralized service, right? They're actually going and, and, and finding, you know, using a blockchain so they have control over their funds and they have, you know, um, they have sort of an, an understanding of, of what kind of risks they're exposed to. And even if a user isn't doing that explicitly, then instead what's happening is they're using a platform, which is actually even more sort of obsessed about what uh, what kind of risks is this platform, this, you know, this maybe this custodial solution, what kind of risks is it exposing its users to, right? So security always, like it, it plays this fundamental role. Um, and in particular, this like, this sort of the task of like figuring out you know, what kind of security are you expecting and what are the risks that you're willing to take and, and all of this stuff, right? And and that's kind of where the problem comes in because every single L1, they sort of offers their own perspective on this, right? So Ethereum, it's like, you know, you want, you have this, this uh, you know, you want the, the users to run the nodes and you have all these like sort of this more, I guess, more pure approach uh, towards uh, decentralization where instead, on the other hand, you have something like Solana, which is like, actually, you don't need all that. You can have an L1 that just does X, Y, and C. And it's, to some extent, it's like, users that use either that that sort of adopt either of those perspectives they have they have very different expectations of what security means like what is security basically and what is decentralization um and so that's why basically all bridges in my opinion ends up being multi-six actually no matter how you construct them you can pretty much think of them as multi-six no matter what and real quick when you're talking about a bridge you're talking about like if I want to get my tokens, my DAI, let's say, from Ethereum to Solana, or from Ethereum to Avalanche, or from you know Polygon back to Ethereum, that's the bridge that you're talking about. It's transmitting from one L1 to another L1 through some sort of bridge, right? Yeah, and actually it's a little confusing because the terminology back in the day used to be that this was called a gateway, and then... A bridge is when you do the kind of the swap. So you, you do an atomic swap cross-chain. But I guess now it's sort of, yeah, like a lot of other terms, it's become a lot more sort of abstract and you just kind of, yeah. I, what I'm talking about is, are these transporting assets from one chain? So to go into that some more. Why do these bridges suck so much? And why do they become multi-sigs? And why do multi-sigs you know, like create kind of a, a centralization vector that's, duct tape as you said yeah so i mean so it's basically that i mean i guess the best example is ethereum and, and solana um i think because that's kind of like that's really the epitome of this whole sort of tension right we have ethereum as sort of the incumbent and then you have solana as this very um you know very promising competitor that that uh, is providing its its own complete ecosystem right and so the fundamental problem is that if you're transporting assets from, I mean, you can, and it's very, it's very concrete today how it works with Ethereum and Solana, right? Where basically the die that you move from Ethereum onto Solana becomes centralized effectively because it, the die, you know, the die doesn't actually leave Ethereum, right? Because it's it, die ultimately is tracked on Ethereum, right? So the die actually is sitting on Ethereum, but in a multisig. And that multisig then issues essentially an IOU on the Solana blockchain. And so what's happening is now you have, you know, you go from thinking of, you know, go from a security model of DAI just being this is, you know, DAI has a security of Ethereum, basically. 
Uh, and now, so one th one thing you're doing is you're moving it over to a new security model, which is the security of Solana, first of all, right? So you have to consider that. And then on top of that, and this is basically the problem, in my opinion, right? You also have to deal with security issues of the bridge. And the security issues of the bridge are like pretty, they're, they're just a lot more severe than the blockchains themselves. So for instance, like on Solana, maybe you could, some would argue that Solana is less secure than Ethereum, but you still can't like, you know, you can't like lose your assets. So you can't like have a, you know, like a, like a 51% attack on Solana that just straight up like steals your assets, right? Um, I mean, the, they're, like, the blockchain is built to prevent that and it provides some guarantees that that means the, the worst thing that can happen is something like a censorship or double spending or something like something that's a bit less severe than straight up like losing your tokens. But unfortunately with a bridge, that's not the case. Like a bridge can like, Entire, like it can it can just go and take all your tokens the moment it's compromised, right? And that's because it has to really, it has to actually control the tokens as they sit on Ethereum when it's trying to when it's sort of providing them across a cross chain on the, on Solana, and that's and that's sort of the I mean it really is because you have these two L1s they don't have like they're deliberately built to not be compatible and then you have to create some kind of system in between that then makes them compatible. And that system in between, it's, I mean, it's actually kind of like its own block, you know, you can always think of it as its own blockchain in one way, but but in practice, it makes even more sense to think of them as multi-sigs. And it doesn't matter what form they take. So actually, even if like, like even when they actually are blockchains, that you can pretty much just think of them as like complicated multi-sigs, basically, because in practice, as a user, you're not gonna, you know, you know you're not gonna sort of spend the effort of like actually figuring out the, the sort of the game theory and the crypto economic guarantees of some particular bridge in reality you have to basically you know think about who you know, who's actually holding these funds and are they going to steal them or not right and that's sort of the the the, um, the 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 calculation you have to make before using a bridge and so what we're talking about with these when you say multi-sigs for bankless users that are not familiar right these are kind of like um you know accounts where it takes a certain number of individuals and their private keys to like to sign whether a transaction goes through or whether they can take your funds or not. So common multi-sig is like five of seven individuals all agree to a particular transaction and you know, that's it, right? So imagine taking your die, moving it through a multi-sig type bridge, putting it on some other chain, say Solana or something like that. And it's a five of seven multi-sig bridge. That means it only takes five people we're probably friends, know each other in real life, like to collude and take all of that die from you. That's essentially what you're saying. Or receive regulatory pressure. Yeah, exactly. That's what you're saying. And you're saying, Rune, that like, that makes the weakest link, like in your security chain, that multi-sig every single time. And that's what happens when we get a multi-layer one universe, right? Yeah. I mean, I think in practice, of course, uh, so actually... Actually, I'm actually a big fan of uh, multi-six as sort of solution. Actually, and that's kind of the thing that I, I mean, that's why I think it becomes so much about multi-six because when you have this sort of situation where you have some unknown risk, you're bridging between sort of two different paradigms of security. It's too complicated for people to actually like, you know, figure out how to measure the security and the risks. And the best option really is to have like a, bunch of trusted actors basically and then just being like yeah i mean i just have to basically trust 
these people not to steal the money. And then, if, I mean, and I'm not sure about the specifics with um, the bridge between Ethereum and Solana, for instance, but I would imagine that we're talking about like some of the top companies in the space, right? And there's this, like there is this sort of intelligent design to it, right? Like there's diversification, there might be jurisdictional diversification. So there, I mean, there's a bunch, there are a whole bunch of optimizations that are made on this kind of construct. Um, but the problem is just that in the end, it's never going to be as, you know, it's never going to be as safe as sort of native security. And, um, and yeah, just, it creates this, this weird dynamic, right? Where something like USDC, like centralized stable coins, for instance, they're completely unaffected by this, right? They actually don't even need to use these centralized bridges. They just straight up sort of create their own centralized um, alternatives, essentially, right? And that's because they're just fundamentally centralized. So they completely sidestep all of these issues. But basically, um, for something like DAI, it like it really sort of um, undermines the the value proposition in the first place because you just the point of it is that it's a you know it's a system that actually runs based on the the, the security of Ethereum, not based on sort of the the trust you place in the individuals that are active day to day or or anything like that, right? Um, but then now you're you're sort of reimposing that kind of of um of downside to it right by by using it through a multisig and ultimately that just means that you can't really you know you can't really compete with someone who's who's like you can't be an outsider on an l1 essentially and then compete with someone who's a local because like as decentralized projects right because you're you're sort of a you're you're your decentralized project that has become centralized essentially and then you're trying to compete with with a local that is just decentralized and that follows exactly the you know only the security model of the this this home chain that you're trying to compete for users on and ultimately that that creates sort of this this um i'll call this sort of game this yeah game theoretic outcome where a project like Maker is just better off not even trying to compete on on Solana. Or at least it's like it's a it's a difficult decision to make because you're ultimately going to be at a disadvantage. And going there and trying to actually uh, sort of boost the activity there by by growing your own market share, it you know it, it you're always going to have that inherent sort of disadvantage. But then what you're actually doing is you're sort of growing you're growing the the home chain of your own competitor in a sense. And that ultimately can lead to the situation where, um, like Solana as a whole, could like become a threat to Ethereum, essentially. And then I even, you know, I talked about this in the tweet thread as well, right? In the worst case scenario, if if Solana, for instance, just became too big, right? If it became the real sort of ETH killer and really just like supplanted Ethereum as the as the main blockchain and sort of the hub for all of DeFi, then you would, you know, it would not be viable anymore to be an outsider of this ecosystem, right? You'd have to be natively there because that's where the marketplace is. That's where the users are. And they, you know, they, they're going to demand decentralization sooner or later, right? Whether it's directly as end users or whether it's the big platforms that decide what they're going to integrate under the hood. Um, and theoretically, uh, like, you know, Maker would, would have to undergo some kind of migration, which is not even really, I mean, Maybe that's not even really realistic, but then the alternative is something like, you know, wither out and basically, uh, uh, you know, get outcompeted as Ethereum gets outcompeted by Solana, right? And so that's ultimately what creates this incentive for Maker to, instead of trying to 
you know, instead of of, of trying to to um, benefit ETH killers that are basically undermining the thing that Maker needs to survive, basically, which is a strong Ethereum ecosystem, strong sort of home home field advantage, right? Maker is way better off, um, you know, supporting L2, right, and trying to build out the the Ethereum ecosystem because that's where Maker has this sort of home field advantage, right, and then. Um, it's going to be the you know it's going to be the other projects that are going to have to eventually go through this kind of you know painful uh, um, L1 migration potentially right if it turns out that that in the long run it'll only you know it'll be Ethereum that ends up uh, winning sort of the winning out in the in the what do you call it the power law distribution of of which L1s are going to see activity. Rune, I want to summarize the thought process so far just to make sure that I've got this right and hopefully for the listeners as well. At the beginning of this show, we talked about why SG Bank might have chosen Maker, and it was because of Maker's risk aversion, right? One thing that Maker has done very, very well is optimize for risk and controlled risk. And then same thing with the Ethereum blockchain itself, right? Ethereum is supposed to be maximally decentralized. We encourage people to run nodes. Uh, We try and do our best to make running a node as easy as possible. And for the Ethereum L1 client developers for the last like three, four years of their lives have just like ground out client optimizations, client optimizations, client optimizations in the name of decentralization. And so when you say like, okay, cool, we have Maker, which is this very risk controlled application on top of this very secure decentralized blockchain. If we want to export our DAI, which is Maker's product to the rest of the crypto ecosystem, all the L1s, uh, we can do that. But then instead of all of this effort that Maker and Ethereum have put into into controlling risk, all that just goes out the window once you put DAI into a multi-sig to port that over to Solana. Because all that security, like Ryan said, it's the weakest link. And as soon as you have a five of seven multi-sig, that's like, well, Ethereum might as well have just had seven nodes. And all of this like client optimizations for the Ethereum blockchain have just gone out the window, as did all the risk control that MakerDAO does. And so what you suggested then next is like, well, we can just build a native clone of MakerDAO on Solana and not have to do any of the bridges. We can just have two makers and they'll be the same entity. Just one will be on Solana and one will be on Ethereum. But the problem you said with that is that, well, then that actually increases the adoption of the non-home field advantage chain, right? This alternative L1. And then there might be a time that because of the actual deployment of MakerDAO onto these other chains, you actually bootstrap that chain into its success. And then we have a messy outcome where the actual home field where Maker started with is now the minority chain. And now there's this whole mess where you have to migrate from minority chain to this new L1 chain. And that's true for not just Maker, but for all of DeFi. And so what you're saying is that it's actually game theoretically rational for Maker to just pick one place and optimize for that one place and make sure that the home base, the home field advantage for Maker stays as strong as possible. So Maker doesn't have to deal with this whole, which L1 do we call home? How do we optimize for like making sure we pick all the same L1s as everyone else? Um, is, is all of that correct? Yeah, I mean, one thing I want to add, yeah, and again, it's, it is uh, it's a very complex um, set of, of interactions. But one, I mean, one thing to 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 mention is you're talking about this like deploying an alternative to Maker on Solana, for instance, right? And actually, this concept of like the copy mm-hmm. um, already there. Actually, we you can't even really do that because the problem is that you just cannot you just cannot sort of 
um, bridge decentralized governance, right? Or rather, if you bridge decentralized governance or any kind of bridge, any kind of decentralization, the level of security you end up with is the security of the bridge. So you can't have like two separate maker instances that are not beholden to the bridge, essentially, unless they actually truly are separate, meaning they have completely different sets of governance tokens. And then the, then they've actually, they actually just become competitors, uh, I believe. I mean, I don't think anyone's run those kind of experiments, but I think in practice, I mean, they're just not, you know, they're just gonna, it's basically gonna be equivalent to, um, to sort of just creating a, a, a competition in that sense, right? And it, because they no longer have economic alignment, right? Yeah, right. Like you lose, you sort of lose the, you you get misaligned economic incentives. Yeah, exactly, right. You spin up an identical twin, but it's your evil identical twin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it turns on you later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's also the thing about all of this is that we're we're talking about like looking really far into the future, right? So in the short run. None of this stuff really applies. It doesn't really have sort of short-term consequences. But you know, that's the thing about Maker and, and uh, me, I guess, is we're kind of obsessed about the very long-term and that's really mostly what we care about. And it's from that perspective, basically, that, I mean, my argument is essentially that you're just, you're just gonna be better off trying to, yeah, like, you know, pick the, pick the you know, try to pick the L1 that wins and, uh, and stick to that, I believe, because if you pick sort of the wrong one, you're not you're not going to have a good time, um, you know, changing your mind later if, if another one ends up being the winner. And uh, and there is absolutely this possibility that I mean, there is this vision of like the multi-chain future. That's so that's what it's called, right? The multi-chain future. That's sort of the the, the phrase that describes this, like what right now I think is actually the the main belief of, of most people, right? That you will have all these various L1s and they'll just and DeFi and sort of the ecosystem will just interoperate across all of this. And that's kind of what I what I call the multisig dumpster fire, because then basically what that world would actually look like is you would just have this endless sort of complexity of of like where, you know, what's actually what's actually the trust assumptions of all these things. And and yeah, I mean, yeah, it's actually like if you sort of start to really dive into it, it's actually really hard to, to even figure out what what does it actually converge to. Um, and I and and sort of my conclusion is in the end you just always end up with everything converging to sort of the one place where everybody agrees. Okay, this is this is what we trust. Like this is kind of this is the common ground. Um, this is where we sort of in, you know when we interoperate with something we interoperate it under these conditions because we don't want to do it with with you know interoperate under conditions that we don't you know with security um, sort of a security setup that we don't understand because yeah I mean you need to. In the long run, you have you know. In the short run, in DeFi, nobody really cares much about security, right? It's it's more the DGEN spirit that sort of rules everything. But in the long run, it's the opposite. You know, the the DGEN spirit can only take you so far, right? And then you have to actually really start to worry about risks. And that's when I think it'll just, you know, it'll set in this sort of requirement that, yeah, probably my guess is it'll be Ethereum, but of course I'm completely biased. That's kind of the thing, right? That I'm already locked in at this point because I'm, I'm exposed to 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 Maker, right? I'm, um, you know, financially and emotionally, basically, I'm fully invested in Maker, and that just means that my own interests requires Ethereum to win. So it's impossible for me to, you know, it's very hard for me to to you know not sort of double down on that uh, that belief, right? And and um, but 
but that's kind of the point, right? That that um, the place where where people will be mostly invested and where people have the most exposures or the most uh, desire to sort of see succeed. That's where that's what's gonna be the standard in the long run of like how apps interoperate. What's so interesting about this, uh, from my perspective, Rune, is like, I've never pegged you previously as any kind of maximalist, in particular, an Ethereum maximalist. And what was interesting about your thread is it was more sort of a a game theoretic uh, case on like playing out on the long time horizon what's going to happen. And you're basically saying that all DeFi protocols that are Ethereum based will protect their home world, right? Will protect Ethereum and will want to work to make Ethereum succeed. Because if they move to any other chain, then, you know, essentially they compromise security and they will lose like to local competitors is what you're saying. So that's one implication. Another implication is on the long time scale, as you said, only one L1 can survive. And I think what you meant is like, not that there won't be other L1s, but that there will be a clear power law winner. Say somebody with like 70%, 80% of the value capture and the market share and the mind share behind this. And this is interesting as well, number three, because I think this doesn't just apply to Maker, of course, this applies to all Ethereum DeFi protocols, whether they state it or not. And what I really appreciated about this thread is like, you actually came out and said it, right? It's like what everyone in the room is kind of maybe thinking or theorizing, you actually said it. Where I feel like some other DeFi protocols are kind of taking a a wait and see perspective and maybe they have plans behind the scenes, but you know, they're not really executing them. That's another, I guess, takeaway for me. Number four, I guess the last takeaway is, of course, none of this applies when we're talking about Ethereum layer two, right? So when we talk about a multi-chain future, I think a lot of people mean what you said they mean, which is like all of these different layer ones kind of interacting in some way, right? Another definition of a multi-chain future is we have essentially it's all in kind of the Ethereum ecosystem, but it's a whole bunch of different layer twos that aren't in any conflict with Ethereum. And they have a different bridge, right? Their bridge is not, you know, 507 multi-sig bridge. Their bridge is based on the underlying security of Ethereum. So ZK rollups and uh, optimistic rollups take this approach. They have very sturdy bridges that don't compromise on security. So those are some of the takeaways in my mind from this thread and why I found it so insightful. Anything to add to that? Yeah, so I think one... um... I mean, then another sort of factor that I haven't really mentioned, but that also plays a huge part in all of this, is the role of the native token as collateral in DeFi. Um, and I actually, so I would actually disagree that this applies to to all or most DeFi apps. Like this concept of, of sort of what do you even call it, like incentivized maximalism or something like that. Right. So I think as in fact most of the apps kind of because. Many of them don't, re- you know, like must mu- much of what people are using today and what what's coming out today. It's not so focused on like security or decentralization necessarily, right? A lot of it is kind of a, I mean, it's sort of closer to, you know, it's more about building these sort of high risk, high reward things. And in that situation, you know, it really makes perfect sense to sort of be all over the place, right? Be super fast, cutting edge, not worry too much about bridges or anything like that, right? Um, but I think in particular, you know, like it's really when you get to sort of the type of, 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 uh, 
role and sort of the type of product that Maker is providing, right? Where we're talking about this like maximal stability, maximum security, maximum conservatism. Um, and that's also where we then get into the concept of the the native token, because the native token just plays such a huge role in this, in, in sort of the ability to create decentralized stability, basically. Um, in fact, are you talking about the native token of the layer one, or are you talking about like the native token of, of maker or some other DeFi protocol? Yeah, sorry. So to clarify, yeah, I'm talking about, I'm talking about ETH, right? So the native token of, of the layer one, like, so, and because I mean, that's why everybody wants to be an L1, right? It's because a native L1 token is just so much more, it's the single most valuable thing that's ever been invented in blockchain, right? And I mean, and you even have the, like, it's so valuable that even you even have Bitcoin that has sort of a, let's call it a terrible business model, right? It's like a system that's just losing money, basically. Yet just the sort of the native token characteristics of Bitcoin makes it insanely valuable, right? And then you have Ethereum, which is like, you know, not only do you have this potential for, for very powerful um um you know unit economics almost right like a very powerful sort of um just basic economic framework where there's profits there's there's surplus and it actually goes to the holders of the token you have that and you combine that with sort of this native you know self-sovereignty of of um of, of also powering and running the network itself you really get something that is just incredibly incredibly valuable first of all and liquid secondly right and 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 well, and then finally, secure and decentralized, which is the whole point of it. And that's the thing that is actually also so incredibly sort of um, interconnected with all of this stuff, right? I mean, one thing is that Maker is sort of on the Ethereum blockchain and it's on the home chain and, and so on, right? And so it, it, this is what the kind of security that our users expect and all of that stuff. But the other thing is like in practice, Maker just cannot really actually migrate away from Ethereum because it has so much ETH sort of backing all the die that you can't, you know, the, the act of sort of DeFi migrating away from Ethereum is going to have implications for the price of Ethereum, of the ETH token, basically. And, and sort of the act of like Maker migrating away from, from Ethereum um, could sort of, like that could just itself, you know, impact the, the stability of DAI, basically. And, and, that, and, and this might actually be the biggest factor of all, basically, and because uh, it's sort of the hidden, the sort of the invisible hand that, that runs crypto communities and, and really runs sort of all of crypto, right? Is that the fact that, you know, Ethereum is a huge deal. There's so much innovation because, first of all, it's super open to people to come and build stuff. And then everyone's actually got sort of a, you know, they're, they're actually vested, have a sort of vested stake, right? Everyone's holding ETH. So they got, they're not only like, benefiting from what they do directly they're sort of also benefiting from being a part of the whole that where everyone's contributing to what's this with these aligned incentives right and it's kind of this the same factors as well that there's this play here and i mean and and, and so you know and this and that's it it bridges once again our problem here because you just like solana is an amazing uh, blockchain i think right it's like super advanced technology and it's like a very clever trade-off i think so i'm actually a, like, i'm a I, you know, and that's why I'm a weird, let's call it a very weird ETH maximalist, right? Because I really think that Solana is a very strong sort of contender and a very, yeah, like a, a, a strong blockchain and so on, right? And, uh, and, and I, like, if you look at the SOL token, it's a 
it's an amazing token, I think, to to use as collateral. For the exact same reason why Ethereum is an amazing token to use as collateral. Um, but try to move it across a bridge and suddenly it's it's really not that appealing anymore. That's basically the problem, right? So so it's a it's not so easy for maker to to um, like it's, I mean it's just not that attractive for maker to like stock up on, on let's say uh, sol tokens as collateral backing die. Like you could have some, sure, but like you wouldn't have you're not gonna you're not gonna feel good having like a, a huge portion of of the collateral portfolio of of a decentralized stablecoin be basically a blockchain token that's held in some kind of like either it's a multisig or it's some kind of very complicated technological uh, machinery right that where ultimately there's all sorts of risks that you can't really like you can't directly analyze them game theoretically you have to just basically put your faith in it right and that's and so in the end you can just think of it as basically like a multisig of a bunch of factors that you hope all um, are gonna work out, but basically if they go wrong and you can't really can you can never know exactly how and and, and why that will happen, then uh, you you could lose you could just lose the assets entirely, right? And importantly, that's just not true about Ether when Maker is on the Ethereum chain, right? Ether the properties of Ether as collateral inside of MakerDAO hold a lot more monetary premium due to its nativity and its nativity to all the other DeFi apps that are on Ethereum. Unlike the soul, maybe there is a monetary premium behind the soul token, but the value of that monetary premium is just thrown out the window when you establish a bridge. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that uh, like a maker clone, I'm not sure if there's, yeah, there is, there is a maker clone on Solana, but it works a little bit differently, works based on derivatives. But I think just like a system that just generates a stable coin by accumulating huge amount of soul tokens natively on Solana that's a very that's a strong model I think but I you know but I I don't exactly see a, a you know a stable coin on Solana you know sort of um, carrying across huge amounts of eth through the the bridge onto Solana to then have a bunch of centralized eth IOUs right. sitting in a in a decentralized right. stable coin over there right so rune does this mean all these chains fight to the death is that how it's going to play out um, I, like, I think in, well, I would say that Ethereum, you know, I mean, I, I said this, you know, what is it in 2015 or something, I made this like original, uh, Reddit comment about, uh, synergy of, of, you know, synergy in, in, in blockchains and, and uh, later, you know, it ended up becoming, you know, it was called DeFi and money Legos and all of that. Right. But uh, basically I think that Ethereum just has this completely unstoppable, momentum already so like in practice it's just already the like it already is the standard essentially um and and uh you know it's just it's growing so fast so like i don't think necessarily that other blockchains will will sort of fizzle out necessarily but i think we've seen it happen with something like eos for instance um whether it will happen to like whether it's a it's a possible outcome for solana i'm I don't know if that's uh, the case. Like it, Solana might have hit critical mass where it's just it can only it's gonna grow from its where it is now. But the question is, is it like I mean, is it ever gonna actually be something that can sort of surpass Ethereum and and be the new standard that Ethereum is today? Um, and um, yeah, I guess it, it it actually comes down to the L2s, right? So that I means and really sort of. The optimistic rollups and like you know Starknet and CK Sync and these things that are coming like if they 
if they get adopted, I think it's game over in the sense that, you know, you'll never, it's just, you know, the window of opportunity for Solana to, to surpass Ethereum is sort of right now, basically, right? We would have to see sort of migrations of applications from Ethereum over to Solana. We would have to see sort of the cutting edge of innovation happening on Solana rather than Ethereum. Um, and, and sort of an, a kind of an irreversible trend towards that, you know, needs to occur before the the rollups sort of, you know, start to develop a critical mass of, of uh, being able to properly tap into the liquidity on the Ethereum mainnet and then having the, you know, user experience and all these things. Um, and yeah, like I think, I mean, yeah, so it's not, it's not about fighting to the death. It's more like fighting f- to see who gets to sort of really, uh, you know, <laughs> bank the unbanked or, or that's a weird analogy, but like who gets to really sort of blockchain the whole world, right? Like wh- what's, you know, so, and I mean, and maybe Societe Generale, that's sort of the, it's a good example of that, right? I mean, the question is, so now they did it and, and there'll be another, you know, a hundred banks doing the same thing soon enough. And the question is, are they, are they all going to go to Ethereum or is it, or is it actually going to happen that, that, you know, that over time, the gravity, the center of gravity will be on Solana, for instance, and you would actually see this sort of large scale uh, global adoption happen with Solana instead. Previously, and also generally, the maximalism arguments have kind of been like emotional ones or subjective ones. But Rune, my take on this is that this is actually more of a technical argument as to for maximalism, right? Uh, And we can actually even just ignore the names of these systems, right? We can ignore the fact that one of these things is called Ethereum. We can ignore the fact that one of these things is called Solana. And we can have the same exact conversation just saying like L1A, L1-2, because bridges are agnostic constructions. Blockchains are agnostic constructions. But the patterns being described here as when you compromise security going from blockchain A to blockchain B is the same. Do you agree that this is actually just like a more technical argument as to why one L1 will quote unquote rule them all, regardless of what that L1 actually is? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think so. And, and the thing is where I'm coming from, I mean, you, you sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier, right? That I'm not, I'm just not someone who's sort of has traditionally been an ETH maximalist. Um, in fact, I've sort of been the opposite. So I've always been sort of advocating for the multi-chain future and, and, but I've always had this. I mean, and, and the reason why I've arrived at these conclusions, which, by the way, are my personal opinions, and it actually re- it really doesn't reflect what the other people in in uh, you know contributing in the maker ecosystem thinks. It's uh, it's very diverse, I guess. Um, but it, it's it, it's it happened because I was spending so much time trying to figure out how do we really you know how do we get our arms around this multi chain future, right? How do we become the stable coin that's, you know, sitting on Ethereum, but it's actually available everywhere, right? You don't have to worry about which L1 will still be available, you know, with native security. And then the, the problem was basically, turns out you just can't, the native security thing, you just can't really do that. Um, I mean, you can do some, and, and you know, there's, a, there's this whole side argument where um, pe- some people will come in and then they will start talking about like, cosmos for instance or some other like basically these like very advanced bridges right but and the argument goes something like um what's going to happen in the future is that everything will be sort of multi-chain and um you know like like 
users will be completely fine bridging across one blockchain to another because when they bridge, they're using Cosmos. So they know, you know, the bridge has this sort of native security. They're very comfortable using Cosmos because they, they trust that and they're used to that. But actually what they're basically doing is they're kind of engaging in the same, they're engaging in the same kind of L1 warfare in a sense, right? Because they're just trying to, to, to argue that Cosmos should be the L1. That's basically <laughs> how I see a lot of this stuff happening. I mean, and then you actually see this stuff all over the place. And this is, I also wrote that in the in the Twitter thread, right? This is what I call a multi-chain propaganda, right? Because you really want to kind of um, adopt this, like, you know, we're working to, I mean, yeah, right? Just this is this S-curve of platforms, right? Like in the beginning, a platform wants to collaborate, uh, you know, with, with sort of the things that build on top of it, right? So at first, yeah, right, an L1 will, will want to not present itself as like an L1, but rather as a whatever L, whatever anything else than an L1, basically. But in the end, I mean, I'm, you know, if Cosmos is running all these bridges all over the place, um, they're gonna have, you know, they're gonna have some some. They're gonna provide their high level security by paying people, right? Like there's gonna be costs related to providing that security, and that's actually what it all comes down to. It's like who gets paid for like providing the ultimate security, like the thing that's sort of like. When I get this stamp of approval, I know I trust it, and I know everyone else also trusts it, so that we can interoperate. Um, and and who gets sort of that premium of like being that final stamp of approval, right? And today that's Ethereum, right? So that's and that's the ETH token. And that's what's making the ETH token so valuable, and that's what's making it so great collateral and so on, right? And in the future, it could be that it's actually not, you know, it could be that it's like Cosmos or something like that, right? Or Solana, or whatever it is. But the point is that. I don't believe that there's going to be more than one of these ultimate stamp of approval um, uh, sort of um, systems, basically, because it just, I mean, it's just not going to be as, as efficient to have multiple pieces of them. And they, it may work in this form of like, it's all bridges and so on, but they're actually all Cosmos and, and everyone trusts Cosmos and everyone's paying Cosmos. But yeah, like that brings us back to L2 and Ethereum, right? Because that's exactly what Ethereum is basically doing with... Um, with rollups in the first place, right? That you can, you can, you can actually have a multi-chain future that is decentralized, as long as everyone's sort of uh, making sure that that they're getting the the stamp of approval of the Ethereum chain, which is right now the de facto sort of, you know, um, truth machine. Rune, let me ask you. This might be sort of a chink in the armor of your argument. I, I'm wondering what your reaction is to this. So, I, I read a tweet recently that said basically. Uh, people who keep harping that whatever is not decentralized enough are just blinded by ideology, right? And the tweet goes on to say, what people really want is open money plus monetary incentive plus community. And you don't need decentralization for that, is what this person said. You said earlier in our conversation that um, for assets like USDC, it really doesn't matter whether it's Ethereum or Avalanche or Solana or name your other L1 chain. Why? Because ultimately it settles back in a, a Coinbase and Circle bank account, right? It's outside, it's a foreign citizen to the DeFi community, right? So it really doesn't matter for those assets. What would you say to that reaction that, hey, basically decentralization doesn't matter as much as you think it does, Rune. And you know people are just here for kind of the open money the permissionlessness and this kind of whole incentive 
compatible community layer that we have. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that, that uh, most people don't care about decentralization and most cases it, it's not actually needed. Um, the thing is just that ultimately decentralization, that's what a blockchain provides. So the, you know, you don't actually, if you want to provide a future of open money and open all this stuff, um, and you don't care about decentralization, you don't need a blockchain to provide that. Right. I mean, let's I mean, like a perfect example is something like FTX, right? That's a really cool example of like, this is where you have a, a, a regular company just doing all sorts of crazy financial innovation. Right. And, and that's what actually really hooks people, right? Like that's, they've got a huge user base. They're, they're incredibly successful, right? Um, and I and I think that's exactly because they're sort of tapping into that that concept, of, right? Of, of like, people just want cool financial uh, tools to access. Um, you know, so much. I mean, we were talking about sort of the good and the bad of blockchain, right? I mean, the reality is that almost everything that's happening in blockchain right now, like, there's this massive sort of it's a it's a hurricane of of like you know basically projects and 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 um like tokenomics that ultimately aren't sustainable right like so much of the activity happening in blockchain today are like people getting yields from like yield farming or something like that right ultimately that uh, it just fundamentally, the reason why it's happening is because it's like the Wild West and we're on the frontier and all these things are, are happening today that they're possible because, I mean, they're, they were enabled by, by decentralization, but they don't really sort of, they don't really need it. They just need, they just need sort of enough of it and enough of a head start to not get like shut down, for instance, right? And over time, that's not gonna, I don't think that that's gonna, it's gonna, not gonna last forever, basically. Like uh, probably, a good analogy is something like we're before the the dot com bubble still, right? We're still in this sort of era where where things just haven't really converged. Um, and I think in the you know in the longer term, they'll there's just I mean there's gonna be this kind of of, of pressure where on one hand you have basically um, you know the the decentralized networks and the sort of the legitimate activity that's happening and fully and fully decentralized systems that are, you know, like DeFi stuff, like, you know, where Maker is trying to, you know, like improve finance through, uh, through better, um, you know, through smart contracts that, that just create better financial primitives and, and these sort of really solid use cases. Um, and then sort of all the way on the other end, you just have like straight up like Ponzi schemes and, and basically the Ponzi schemes, what they're really going to be running up from in the long run is, is like regulation, right? And, and, and people suing them or whatever is going to happen to them, right? And, and the way they protect themselves is ultimately with like anonymity and decentralization. And you can kind of compromise on decentralization as well when it comes to, to um, creating scams or, or Ponzi's or whatever. But there's a, there, I mean, there, over time, there's going to be, I think there's going to be a limit to that. And you're really going to see that, that, um, a lot of the kind of this middle ground activity we see today is going to kind of bifurcate into sort of just regulated stuff that's centralized and then, you know, decentralized stuff that is either not regulated at all because it's completely cut off from the physical world or that is regulated in a way where it's sort of the pieces that interact with the real world that get regulated. 
ruin one part of your tweet thread, which you hinted at a second ago, which I, I want to touch on before we close out this section and move on to clean money is uh, the whole um, Trojan horse multi-chain propaganda part of your tweet thread. My interpretation of this is that if you are a new chain with like lesser adoption, you're like a minority chain and there's a chain out there that's bigger than you, you are game theoretically incentivized to say, oh, it's a multi-chain world. There's many chains and we're one of them. Uh, Come come do your things on our chain because we're part of this multi-chain world. And that's rational for a chain with lesser adoption to promote that sort of narrative towards, you know, the greater conversation. But then if you're a chain with a greater level of adoption, you have an incentive to say it's a winner-take-all environment. It's a power law distribution. We are in the lead. We are going to stay in the lead. We're going to consume everything. And I think what you're implying is that like, if you are a lesser chain, you want to promote this multi-chain narrative until you have sufficient adoption that you actually become the dominant chain, and then you swap, and then you say, well, no, it's actually a winner-take-all environment, and then you rug-pull the narrative and say, now that we've gotten all the adoption that we have, like, turns out it's actually a, a power law distribution. And you were also saying that like things ultimately collapse down towards that final stamp of approval, right? The strongest stamp of settlement assurances that a blockchain can provide. And those assurances get stronger and stronger and stronger with greater and greater network effects. And so going back to like the last comment I brought up is like, is this kind of a logical conclusion of L1s, right? Like L1s all collapse down towards a maximalist tendency or network effects or to whichever one can create that the strongest settlement guarantees, the strongest stamp of approval. Ultimately, the game theory of all these competing chains collapse down to who has the best stamp of approval? Is that like the simplest way we can like collapse all of the things we've been saying is like, well, it's ultimately the game is who has the strongest stamp? I think I think you can argue that to some extent. Um, and, but I mean, but there's, like there's just so many factors involved in all of this, right? Um, and and uh, I think, you know, well, one example I wanted to make uh, is that you can also think of it as like when you have this sort of, you have this, this lesser chain, right? Like a new chain with sort of less security, essentially, right? That's not considered the, it's not considered, yeah, like the, it doesn't have that sort of final industry standard stamp of approval characteristic yet. Um, As a result, you don't really care so much about what's coming through the bridge. Like, I maybe that, I mean, I guess maybe today is a little bit different, right? But I think early on with Solana, especially, you know, you could be able to be like, well, Solana itself, pretty much looks like a multi-sig, right? There's a bunch of big nodes and all that, you know, so what's the difference between going through the sort of this, the, the actual multi-sig bridge and then just like being on the native security of Solana? It, it, there maybe isn't that much of a compromise um, in the beginning. And but and that's basically the thing you could really say, right? That when you're, when you're sort of the underdog and you're transporting from, uh, you know, stuff from other chains, you just don't really mind the, you know, you're because you're basically, you're, you're trying to cultivate a, di- you're trying to bootstrap a different kind of community that's just more have higher risk tolerance anyway, essentially, right? And then, yeah, once you're in the incumbent, it becomes the exact opposite. You kind of want to, you're the incumbent, so you really want to to emphasize that being, you know, being the the, um, I mean, that's exactly what's the case with Ethereum today, right? We all hold ETH. Everyone's in Ethereum hold ETH, right? It's so freaking important to be ultra secure, right? Like security is the most important thing in the world. And, 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 you know, like this sort of diamond level security, it just, 
it really makes sense that that is just so freaking important, right? But I think if you're if you're a holder, if you hold a, if you all your your exposure is to some new L1, then it's just not you know you're not going to have the same mindset until um, you know your own interests align with that basically. And uh, and yeah, it all comes down to the bridges, right? Because the bridges are kind of they just fundamentally they will always have a different like they always mean adopting and 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 an inferior security model basically and once you're used to an environment of very high levels of security that suddenly becomes a, a bad thing right and and yeah i i just really think that you would you know over time you would absolutely expect to see that on solana for instance users will will prefer when they're looking for something decentralized they will prefer stuff that's native because they will just not consider the, the bridge to be as decentralized as as the stuff that's like truly native, following the, the real rules of, of Solana and being exposed to only Solana and exactly that. A super fascinating discussion. I've not heard someone articulate it in quite that way. So, uh, you know, thank you for that. And I think to distill this down, because this is partially a podcast about the future of Maker, right? And what you're saying is basically, you think the future of Maker is Ethereum and should remain Ethereum for the game theoretic reasons that you outlined. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the conversation with Rune Christensen thus far. Like we said in the beginning, in the second half of the show, we turn the conversation towards MakerDAO as a green machine and DAI becoming clean money. And both the, the rationale as to why MakerDAO needs to become a purpose-driven DAO, as Rune said in his blog post, and why that purpose should be climate change. So stay tuned for the second half of the show coming up next. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their earn program where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. The Aave protocol is a decentralized liquidity protocol on Ethereum which allows users to supply and borrow certain crypto assets. Aave version 2 has a ton of cool features that makes using the Aave protocol even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi money Legos, yield, and composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can supply to the protocol in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have supplied collateral. Here you can see me borrowing 200 USDC against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens in ETH. 
I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option. But I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock in that interest rate in permanently. V2 also features the ability for users to swap collateral without having to withdraw their assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. With Aave, users can do this in one seamless transaction, saving you time and gas costs. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. Let's talk about the, the next subject in the future of Maker. And this is uh, a couple of days ago, you published a post in Maker Governance because now that Maker is decentralized, I guess you're just another guy in the Maker Governance forums, right? Just another guy posting. But you do have some clarity of vision and some great ways of articulating yourself. And you wrote this post called The Case for Clean Money. And this is basically the thesis or the idea that DAI should become clean money, that it should become greener over time, more environmentally friendly in an ESG type of asset, if you will, or backed by ESG type assets. Um, this was a statement I'll just pull out to kickstart this conversation because we want to dig into this post some more. You said at somewhere near the beginning, to truly reach its potential, Maker needs to become a purpose-driven DAO a purpose-driven DAO. Let's start with that like fundamental foundational thesis there. Why do you think that's true? Why does Maker need to become a purpose-driven DAO? Why can't it just go seek profits and make that kind of the short-term pursuit? What is it with the purpose-driven thing that is uh, so important? Yeah, so it's it's kind of a, you know, it's 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 actually really exciting, you know, the, the world we're in now with, DAOs evolving and, and human, or, you know, sort of new forms of human organization. And um, with Maker, like this this uh, proposal that, I, that I've made, ultimately as sort of, you know, basically as my opinion as an MKR holder, basically on how I can, uh, how I can and sort of contribute and, and, and support the project as much as possible, um, which I do obviously hope and I'm glad to see already it's getting some traction but um, uh, th yeah so there's a whole range of things that I've been thinking about basically the whole time I've, I've been in the foundation right that I've been this sort of distilled out and, and ultimately I came up with this this concept of sort of yeah centering everything around this this clean money vision and this the, the question of like the DAOs like how a DAO should organize and this concept of a purpose-driven DAO versus, a, I guess, yeah, you could say like a profit-driven DAO or something like that. That's actually, that's that's like a really age-old um, kind of issue and dilemma that, that we've been dealing with in Maker since actually the very beginning. And it's it just comes, that it's, it, you know, the very simplest way to think about it is just the the really the fundamental game theoretic problems with, with DAOs are basically things like governance attacks, right? And, and uh, and sort of the tragedy of the commons, where um, you have this, you know, you have this sort of shared public infrastructure, like project that you're using, and then you're you're counting on all all sorts of individuals to coordinate around how to grow the thing as a whole, kind of in a in a way that benefits everyone. Um, and you're worried about individuals instead of doing stuff that benefits everyone. You're worried about them doing things that just benefits themselves disproportionately right and the i guess the most basic um sort of example of this of all is like the you know the the governance attack where you could have in most DeFi protocols if someone actually controlled the majority of the 
the, the voting shares, they can just straight up like steal all the assets in that protocol. Um, Maker actually has protections against that. So it's more like you can end up into this kind of this uh, basically uh, yeah, crypto economic um, death spiral kind of where what ends up happening is the protocol uh, shuts down and everyone is re- everyone is settled out and, and has their funds returned. So people don't actually lose money, but you can have the, the whole protocol actually shut down as a result of a governance attack. Um, but, you know, so that was like, it was already clear from the beginning that there is this problem of like people have to participate honestly and they have to kind of like, you know, there has to be this element of like, the, basically the whole, right? That you're a part of a DAO and you're contributing a part, you know, for the, for, as a group. And you have, I mean, and, and in the very, you know, the real, the predecessor to, to, to DAOs, uh, which was BitShares that really invented these like very first, um, yeah, like DAOs basically called DEX back then. Back then. Um, you really, you really had this, like this, this concept, like, you know, the community spirit of a, of a DAO, right? And of like, you know, people holding held together by the token. And you even have that, like, I mean, even in Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin itself is driven by the same thing of like the, the, um, yeah, the maximalism in a sense, right? Like the toxic maximalism is actually a kind of like a way for, for, you know, for Bitcoiners to sort of, you know, uh, work together towards a greater good, right? A greater sort of whole. And, um, and, and, um, yeah, like for, it was clear to me that this is actually fundamental for DAOs to function because the ba- okay so the basic problem with um, everyone just being driven by money is just that you're just you know what if it's about making money the problem is that's just never that's not a, a shared thing ultimately right it's all like making money is something that happens individual to you so you're you're gonna cooperate with the group. You're gonna you're gonna work together as long as everybody. That's how everyone makes the most money. But if you're ultimately there for the money and you're given an option to make more money for yourself at the cost of others, then if that's the only thing that drives you, that's actually the, you know, that's the what you what you're gonna choose to do. And yeah, so in Maker now we have this like very very complex, very advanced governance process and even a governance bureaucracy that that sits around this process with people that are actually being paid by the protocol and you know that are the full-time employees right like getting getting money straight out of the the protocol's uh, revenue and i think that that's like getting for like for instance like being able to organize such a bureaucracy it really starts looking like the kind of, of, of challenge that you have when you're just trying to create a you know like a startup for instance or a company right where you really need you need some. You need sort of a north star. You need some way to really align people. And and in a in a normal company, you can do that through. Well, you can just have a you know centralized organization, right? You can have like a leader. Um, in a DAO, that's not. It's not that simple, right? Like, even if you have a leader, over time that leader is gonna disappear, right? The DAO is supposed to still function even without the leader. Um, and that's why I think that really the the best option then is basically to to create a you know like a a vision and a, and a purpose that just actually makes sense to people so that when individuals, they contribute to a DAO and, and in doing so sort of contribute to the greater, the greater good, right? Like the thing that inspires them to do that is they know everyone else is, is doing the same thing. And it's like, I'm not only like when I'm sort of honestly participating in governance and, and actually voting and considering what's best for everyone else, even though I'm ultimately that's a, 
that is sort of an act of altruism. It helps myself, but it also helps everyone else. Uh, and, and, and to a large extent, it's everyone else that gets the, the, the most of the benefit. Um, you know, the, like if, if you're doing that in an environment where you're helping everyone else make money and you're basically not really making money by doing that. And it's just sort of, it's just about the money. Then the, like there's a mismatch between there's a mismatch of, of the incentives there and sort of the outcome. And instead, if you have a, a situation where there really is an actual sort of, um, vision and purpose that everyone can follow you just haven't you're just going to have an easier time getting a getting a, a critical mass in a community where people will actually collaborate uh rather than than the defect in the game i guess you can say one point we always hammer on at bankless is that this whole crypto revolution thing the thing that it does the most is that it aligns human values with the market value of our assets and that's kind of what i see with this proposal of saying like hey let's align MakerDAO with being green so that we can actually align more people under that shared banner under that shared goal and we'll come back to this subject towards the end of this conversation because i do want to ask like is this the vision for MakerDAO that is actually putting MakerDAO first like is this altruism or is this actually just the most optimal strategy for MakerDAO growth? But before we get there, I want to unpack this whole green money approach first and foremost. And in your blog post, and again, when we started this conversation, we talked about Society Generale. You said the recent governance proposal by Society Generale, one of the world's largest banks, proves how Maker has the potential to impact the deepest layers of finance as a new financial backend. And so my question is that, are you saying that MakerDAO can actually influence the outcome of the real world by picking and choosing what collateral it accepts into its protocol? Uh, I mean, that's the that's the potential if it if it uh, scales enough. Um, and I think so. And I mean, I th you know, that's sort of it's hard to sort of um, navigate just all the different complexities that exist in all this, right? But I actually think one one point that that's um, that maybe makes the most sense to focus on is this concept of, um, you know, of like altruism versus sort of the greater good versus your own good, right? And um, because, you know, we're the, the thing about climate change is that it's just really, really serious. And it's like, it's reached the point where it's so serious, it's so severe that, that you're really, you know, People are go, you know, it's sort of the story goes that that people have sort of gone from from, you know, it used to be that that the sort of climate denialism was the big issue, right? That people like sort of just denying that it's happening, and now the big issue is sort of climate sort of uh, doomerism, basically, right? That like it just seems impossible to deal with, so we just gotta give up and and resign to our fate, kind of, and and just uh, yeah, like ignore it in a sense. And, <laughs> But and yeah, like the the problem is, it's not you know, it's not a good thing. And and uh, if you're if someone like me that has has uh, kids, you, it really you know it's 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 tough to accept. But the reality is that we're just in for some very hard times, basically. Um, and and that's where it kind of gets back to this, you know, the you know the concept of the DAO as a as this sort of a, a bounded group of people that have to work together, and and you know you wanna you wanna do what's best for yourself, but then the whole thing sort of falls apart because if everyone just what does what's best for themselves, the, the DAO can't even function. You have to kind of reach this 
this um, positive Nash equilibrium, right? Where everyone works together and contributes their part and then it, and it works. And yeah, we're, the, we're in the same situation. You can think of the whole world basically as a DAO in that sense, right? That's right now <laughs> failing, failing horribly at, at, um, at, at choosing to collaborate, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, so from that perspective, the question is basically how can, you know, how can we as individuals change that? Um, because we're, I mean, it's actually about like our lives. It's about like our, our homes, right? And our children and, and, uh, yeah, like, um, the good news is that maker uniquely is in a really interesting spot to be able to actually help with this kind of systemic change. Right. And, and, um, and yeah, like, I mean, good example is that banks actually want to interact with maker, right? So you have potentially a way to, to, uh, if the banks want to, to access uh, cheap capital for maker, maker might be able to turn around and then, um, you know, ask for collateral that is, that is, uh, environment, you know, that's sustainable, that doesn't have uh, negative externalities and maker in turn, by virtue of being a decentralized currency does have an ability to somewhat capture the value of, of preventing negative externalities and, and creating positive externalities because it's basically the, um, like the, the, the the viral effect, like the viral potential of currency, basically, right? The, the, the sort of the network effects of liquidity and of, of, um, of sort of trust in currency are so incredibly powerful that like, you know, promoting a currency on the basis of this currency is, is, uh, you know, it's good for the world is actually very viable because it just, that's actually what people would expect if they're, if you're asking, if you ask them to adopt some new currency, I mean, that, that's uh you know that first of all they don't care about money you know they really it's the most boring thing they've ever heard so it's like very hard to even get people to to think about something like that but then like if it you know if it's actually gonna happen then it, you know like the banks right now you know in the end the way it works is who's offering you know zero point whatever percent more in in, in the interest rates right and they sort of all just follow the same fundamental paradigm and in practice people just don't change the banks for instance right and uh, i think that that's where you can you know you can come with a that's exactly what DeFi has this potential right of like showing it look this is a way for us to, to realize that the whole world is in this is actually yeah, this big interconnected yeah we can always think of it as like a big interconnected organization right where everything does ultimately have to work together or we're all gonna destroy each other because we'll Will uh, will negative externality each other to death basically, um, and uh, and and DeFi really yeah it can you know it it provides a very powerful tool to try to change this because first of all you can program it into the money right you can provide the banks with cheaper capital if if the people are willing to 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 access um, currency that they consider to be clean clean money right if they if that means that 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 you get more adoption then you can you can turn around and you can use that to actually affect the change in the system which then leads to even more adoption and that's kind of on the i guess the branding and, and, and marketing side of this right and that's a way where it's a very unique way that you can use DeFi to actually like capture some of the value that um you know some of the positive externality that normally would only go to everyone else and as a result you have a you know nobody's got an incentive to do it 
but in this case, there's like a you know you can sort of you can basically say, look, we can use this value to try to bootstrap a world currency, basically. Um, and yeah, then there's like all these sort of other um, like there's there's these sort of knock-on effects on 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 how it you know how it can actually make a difference, right? So um, there is the like there's there's also the you know there's also the fact that not only can maker sort of uh, try to affect more sustainability through um, how it allocates capital, but then there's also this concept of climate alpha, basically where the current financial system basically has to sort of ignore what's going to happen with climate change. It's and it's really really bad. It's like you know it's it's literally it's like worst. It, what's happening is like worse than the absolute worst case scenarios that were predicted right so we're like sort of off the scale bad basically um and the problem is it Wait, has why implications do, for it. why do they have to ignore it rune is why it, do you think the traditional f- it's because if you start pricing in climate alpha and if you start sort of ca- do making the calculations of how much does it cost to sort of pull the co2 out of the air again that the fossil fuel you know the fossil fuel companies are, are, are creating now and like the, the math of like how the global economy works, it, it basically doesn't check out. So like, you you know, what's happening is people are then just not even making the calculation at all, right? They're just focusing on the short term. And uh, yeah, you you know, this, this system is sort of finding all these creative ways to, to um, kick the can down the road. And really, the I think the number one, I mean, yeah, the number one thing that, that's really happening is basically people are, assuming that there's going to be this kind of silver bullet that will emerge basically. So the silver bullet is sort of the way that, that it's being explained away because yeah. And often it's called the technological solution or something like that. Um, and arguably the reason why this is happening and the reason why people accept this and the re- like the financial markets accept this, even when we're talking about like, you know, it's basically ignoring huge risks and sort of betting your money on the wrong horse, basically based because you, you know, because you basically the implications of, of accepting that those risks exist just means that you you can sort of the whole thing can come, sort of come come crashing down, right? But but I think that um, the reason why the concept of the silver bullet of the technological solution is so appealing is because we're so used to this kind of exponential, um, ex- I would say, sort of exponential innovation that happens in in you know when it comes to digital technology right so things like moore's law and and how crazy you know the iphone is now compared to whatever right and the internet and all this sort of virtual stuff that's just like you know every year it's just a new you know blockchain itself maybe the best example ever right of just like how you just have these complete paradigm shifts um but the reason why it's like it's so severe and happening like that is because it's we're talking about in, you know technology that relates to information ultimately right so it's not bounded by physics but we've but we've really become used to these kind of massive transformations and and yeah climate alpha or sort of the, the, the you know the reality of climate change is that that's not possible in the physical world unfortunately you don't get these like complete exponential transformations it's very sort of incremental what's possible to do right because climate change is not digital, it is physical. And what you're saying is like these paradigm shifts, these zero to one moments, they've all been in the digital world. Uh, and you're saying people are used to having these zero to one moments, but forgetting that like these zero to one moments that we've all been happening in like 
our digital devices, our digital lives, our digital internet. And so what, what you're saying, Rune, with this climate alpha is that the market is just not pricing in appropriately the future, the negative future of that we have with climate change. And I'm kind of reminded of our episode with Kathy Wood, who talks about like one of the reasons why ARK Invest has done so well is because she has priced in components of the future that so many of the legacy institutions of the world have completely forgot about. So what you're saying is like there is this certain amount of alpha that's out there and available and no one's capturing it because if banks or financial institutions actually started to price in risk associated with climate change, well, they would actually be like at a net loss in profitability. They actually wouldn't be able to sustain themselves and therefore the global economy wouldn't be able to sustain themselves. And so everyone is just ignoring the costs of climate change in order to make sure the economy actually works. And I think what you're saying is that 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 leaves an arbitrage opportunity for MakerDAO to lead with assets and financial opportunities that do answer towards climate change. Is that all right? Yeah, and I think you can really compare it to the, the financial crisis, right? Where it just, you know, nobody wants to look into sort of the mortgage-backed securities and all this stuff that's happening. While this, they're making money, it all works. And the problem is, if they suddenly look, start looking into it, I mean, that it's, it would be very uncomfortable because they've got so much sort of, the system is just so stuck in the way it's running right now. And yeah, basically what I think uh, is going to happen is that there are certain physical assets in certain locations, which are sort of very, basically very far north and very far south in, in areas that will be able to remain, um, you know, have a, yeah, basically remain very stable, even if, if uh, the rest of the world starts to really unravel and become very unstable. And so it's particular land and sort of very, you know, physical things like food production is a very basic stuff in these places. It's just, you know, it's going to be um, really the most important thing in the future. And, and, uh, and what I think that, that the role that, that Dai can really play in all of this is that when you have people, you know, let's say in near the, the equator, right? Like that, that are probably going to, you know, they'll become climate refugees sooner or later. They'll just, it's just not be possible to survive there. Um, especially if you're sort of a regular person. Um, what a really important role that, that maker can play is basically so when people from these areas, they have to escape and they have to go to places that are, you know, that are actually, um, um, climate resilient and, and that you could, that are still livable. The problem is all of their own assets, if they're all stuck, whether, you know, if they all build their assets and, and all their money and, and, you know, maybe, you know, they barely have any money in the first place, right? There's, there's going to be people that, that the, you know, because that's kind of the problem with climate change as well. It really affects, it's very unequal the, the way it affects people, right? But um, if, like, if they already don't have that much and then the few th- the few assets that they do have sort of lose their value because now they're, you know, they have land in a, that's, a place that's now desert. I mean, that's a really big problem. They're not, because they're just not going to be able to sort of pay their way to, to um, escape that, right? And what, what DAI can, can really do is it can play this role of identifying the climate alpha before the system, you know, the rest of the system is able to, and actually allow people to, to in a way sort of protect themselves against this future, right? Because if you hold your, you know, if, if, if DAI is backed by, by um, assets that are very climate resilient, 
then um, you know even if you know if you, as long as you hold your money and die, then even if if uh, you, you know you lose everything else, at least you know you're going to have money that they'll get, they'll accept in you know New Zealand or something, right? Which may be the place you want to get to. Um, and I think that one of the things this can lead to then is is a way for kind of you know just means that you can you can really equal the playing field a little bit between um, sort of regular people and 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 the elite right that are that are going to be much less affected by climate change among other reasons because I mean what they do is they they just build bunkers in New Zealand right that's sort of one of the big stories of of, of climate change right and a regular person doesn't have the ability to to um, build a bunker in New Zealand but they should be able to at least hold money that is backed by agricultural and, and real estate assets in New Zealand or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's going to make a big difference. So, Rune, let's get into the specifics of how dye actually becomes clean. You, you've said a number of different strategies, but I just want to actually uh, kind of take it through the story of how this actually happens. So uh, we have the Society General as an example, using MakerDAO as a facility to get access to capital. So how do we use that strategy to actually impact the future outcome of the rest of the financial system? It's like, do we accept like carbon credits as collateral? We have ESG collateral. Like what are the actual prescriptive details as to how Maker actually generates clean dye? Yeah, I actually think that that, um, sort of the real end game is that, and, you know, and and yeah, and this is basically the, the reality of climate change, right, is that the whole world needs basically what, you know, total war approach, right? So it's, it's, you know, fundamentally, the way that economies and businesses function is just that they have to start considering negative externalities when they do business. And I guess that means, um, you know, ultimately, like governments regulating them or something like that, right? But, but uh, the way we can get in that direction is, is, actually for you know it could be something as simple as maker um providing different risk like basically different terms different cost of capital different uh, risk parameters based on also uh, accounting for for externalities right so not just the sort of the direct risk of um you know of a of an asset but then also kind of the the external risk that this asset produces for everything else um and uh, in practice, I mean, I think the, Soci- the Societe Generale um, relationship, for instance, it like, and I wrote this in the post as well, like, I think the the place where that actually fits in is not necessarily, like, it's going to be a while before, you know, Maker gets to to boss uh, them around, right? If it ever happens. So it's not, it's not like, like, we can, we can sort of, it's not an effective place to try to, to really have an impact, I think, in terms of um, having, you know, I mean, certainly, if Maker becomes another voice in the in sort of the growing momentum for for climate action, that does actually create some tiny indirect um, uh, sort of pressure on on Societe Generale and all the other banks to also start to, to really consider ESG, um, like really consider consider externalities and how they do business. So, what you're saying is that the legacy financial world is taking advantage of not having to answer towards its own externalities that it costs. And that leaves an opportunity for a maker to do that. And so like maybe some scapegoat for carbon production, let's say some car company comes and this is a car company that has not committed to electric vehicles and uh, they're doing combustion engine only. 
and they're asking for a million dollar loan. And then something like Tesla comes to MakerDAO and they're also asking for a million dollar loan. You're saying like MakerDAO could charge a stability fee for this carbon emitting company that's 10 times higher than the stability that they would charge for Tesla, who, which produces electric cars. And these numbers will be measured by the externalities that Maker Governance attempts to measure and calculate. And that hopefully just tips the playing field towards capital being allocated towards companies that are doing things that are climate aligned. Is that the model? Yeah. So, yeah. So that, I guess that's the point that like, when it comes to initially, when it comes to working with the big institutional partners, there's no way to really impact them directly. Um, but yeah, like when it comes to sort of allocating a lot of the, the, basically just a lot of the capital that's sitting in maker. And I think in particular right now, what's very sort of pressing is all the USDC, right? Then what I'm arguing for is that maker takes a more, instead of, of today, uh, where the collateral onboarding process is sort of, it's very, it's just not very, it's sort of reactive in a sense, right? So maker receives all these applications and then somehow tries to prioritize them and, and somehow like figure out how to, how to price the risk of, of every single one of them. And this, I mean, first of all, it's very so chaotic and, and, and uh, not very efficient to, to just consider sort of any type of proposal is coming in. But this, another really big issue is just that like, it's like Maker is right now sort of set up to have to try to figure out how to really be an expert on literally any subject, right? Like to receive any type of proposal and then actually know how should I price this? which um, is not, I mean, either it's not, it's just going to go really, really slowly or even worse, Maker would could, could jump into all sorts of deals that, that the community just doesn't understand. So what I'm, you know, so, so one way to look at it is this is just, we really just basically need to like narrow down what are the areas where Maker wants to kind of specialize and, and actually know what it's doing. Um, and that's where I think that, that um, when it comes to picking that, Anyway, sort of, then you you know you really should should pick um, basically sustainability projects like uh, sustainable energy production, and I think primarily that's because um, that's kind of it, it, that creates that really helps with the brand, right? Like it's a very you know it's very powerful if you're able to say this mo you know money backed by clean energy, you can sort of show it, right? You can can show people, look what DeFi can do is it can build this huge windmill, right? All, all these, this wind farm with 10 windmills, right? That, that they were actually funded through a computer program, right? That is programmed to basically fund these kind of things, right? And I think that that's, that's um, you know, that's, that's actually something that people will understand can, you know, can impact the, the global situation when it comes to climate, unlike something like paper straws, right? Which is sort of this, corporate scam almost of like making people feel guilty, but also being like, yeah, you, this is not, you know, the world is ending and you're going to be sitting there sipping on a, on a paper straw. Right. And it's not going to do anything. Um, and I think, but yeah, like, I think like being able to, to sort of, you know, really showcase that, that ultimately it's just a coordination problem. And we simply have, we can, we need to figure out a way to coordinate and we can do that through, um, money. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I was going to ask about that, Rune. So, so like, um, you know, narratives are so important in just for humanity, but also especially maybe in the crypto space right now, right? So nascent, right? And so ETH has developed this ultrasound money type narrative a bit more recently, right? So you're talking about DAI as ultra clean money. 
and developing out that narrative. And my question is, do you think that will be a demand catalyst for DAI, right? You know, certainly good for the crypto industry writ large, which I want to actually ask next. But do you think just people will want to hold and spend DAI because it has a positive social impact and reduces, you know, negative environmental externalities? Yeah, I mean, I just want to, like, first of all, I come, you're right. I really agree that crypto has truly proven that attention and narrative and, you know, yeah, like the sort of, you know, well, there's this concept of the attention economy, right? It's like, this is what drives everything, especially sort of capitalism today, right? I mean, you have examples like, you know, GameStop or something, right? Showing that it's really, that's what really matters. And and it, all over the place in crypto, right? You just see it again and again and again, that really it, it's the attention, it's sort of the, the um, yeah, getting the, the, the focus attention that, that generates value uh, in financial markets today, right? And um, so already there, I think it, you know, I think it, it, it um, it's like a, it's somewhat like a proven model. You could actually think of like, I mean, arguably, I think Tesla's success and, and the fact they became the, the, the most, uh, you know, valuable company in the world, like so much of that was exactly that, it was exactly this, you know, it was the, the narrative of the altruism, sort of the positive benefit to humanity that they create right more so than than i mean and, well rather the fact you know and the fact that it 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 combines with the business model itself and that just that's a very compelling thing right i mean that's the kind of that's a story that's the kind of story people want to hear right now right they want to hear some kind of realistic way that we can we can uh, do this without having to sacrifice all sorts of you know sacrifice all sorts of stuff, right? And, and we've actually seen this play out in our world as well. When NFTs took off, a lot of people heard about Ethereum for the first time. And a lot of people started like boycotting NFTs because Ethereum is under proof of work. And so we've actually already seen this impact our industry because people are decently motivated to align with their values. And there's a decent amount of people out there that have the values of not destroying this planet due to climate change. And in your post, you actually cited that like the same sort of reaction. In 2008, we had a housing crisis due to the nature of the financial system, the black box nature. And as a result of that, there was Bitcoin was created. And like people talk about this relationship between like, well, there was this massive problem that this financial system created. And then the people of the world as a reaction to that created Bitcoin. We use that as a solution. We're actually also seeing that same thing in DeFi, where the current financial system is so closed, so gated, so unwelcoming that DeFi has been a reaction towards that permissioned financial world. And one of the reasons why DeFi has been so successful is because people have been longing for something like DeFi for so long as a reaction to how just closed and gated the traditional financial system is. And so I think there's room where if this is successful, the branding of DAI as clean money, the narrative of DAI as clean money can be successful as a reaction to the rest of the world just completely ignoring this whole climate change thing. Is that your take as well? Yeah, I think, I mean, I have high hopes that uh, I don't, you know, that, that this is a way to really drive people into crypto that, you know, right now just don't see the point because basically it's about money and money and money and money and not everyone cares about that, right? And being able to show, look, you can do more than, can be about more than money, right? It doesn't have to be all yield farming and compounding interest and collateralizing something into a vault and then, 
drawing, uh, you know, you know, doing going through three hundred different smart contracts to get the most crazy yield you've ever seen, right? Like a lot of people, they just that's just not you know that is doesn't doesn't appeal to them. It's not relevant to them. But climate change is increasingly becoming sort of very relevant to to a lot of people around the world. And I think I think there's some places where it's still sort of less so. And I, you know, I think um, America is sort of unique in that I don't think climate change is nearly as much on the agenda there as it is, you know, in other places. I mean, I'm from a country that's literally it's just going to disappear. You know, like it's actually it's it's going to go underwater. The you know Denmark, which is kind of you know, there's a there's a big difference between uh, you know like how much people how close is this to people, but I remember seeing this. There's this recent study um, where basically some scientists went out and asked a bunch of young people what they think of climate change, and it was like more than half said the world is doomed. You know, so there's a lot of and that's this sort of doomerism that's happening today, right? That is actually very it's causing a lot of personal stress sort of to a lot of people right and what i'm i'm really hoping is that we can we can basically use DeFi to sort of rally the people that today believe that we have to just give up basically we can't even do anything we should go out there and we should should tell them that look we do have this one thing called DeFi, which allows us to control some you know a little thing called money which is actually like the thing that makes everything work and, and, and act right and is you know in some ways you could say it's the you know it's money it's the way money flows around the economy that's ex- directly what's causing uh, the coordination problem in the first place um but you know like what's kind of um like something that's kind of built into the plan i guess you can say is a sort of a hedge as well where we just don't i mean there's a good chance it's just not you know maybe maybe um, people just don't care and it's just still too boring, you know, money and finance is too boring. People don't care. It doesn't even matter if it's clean, whatever it is, you know, they're just they're too focused on on whatever, their TikTok or something, right? And uh, and, and people just don't care. And, and like, and if that's the case, the thing is like the less sort of climate action that's out there, let's, let's say the less excitement and sort of the less adoption of maker there is based on, on the climate message and this sort of rallying cry for, for climate solidarity, um, the greater climate alpha will be, right? So we, Maker can sort of get to benefit from, from both of the outcomes in a sense. Like either Maker will grow significantly because it's, it's, uh, it, it sort of manages to, to tap into this zeitgeist and, and bring, you know, thousands of people into to blockchain. Maybe the whole world becomes powered by blockchain as, as the way to, to um, you know, overcome the transition away from, from uh, fossil fuels. Or the other option is that the world basically ends, and uh, Maker was was very early to to buy up all the, you know, the good assets basically, um, and 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 yeah, it's, you know, it's it's a uh, it's unlikely, but you know, you could it, it's possible to imagine a future where no other currency manages to really sort of hedge against uh, just how bad things will get, and you will end up with like Maker as like this ultimate currency that just happens to be diversified across the the um you know the the places that remain as very uh, stable economies this is very long-term thinking sir and i love that because it sort of fits the motif of maker from the general direction i mean you know two other things i love one 
this kind of flips the narrative, at least in the US. We've seen senators like Elizabeth Warren come out against cryptocurrency and say, it's energy intensive, it's wasteful, right? Well, now we have a flipping of the narrative, potentially. Ethereum transitioning to proof of stake, right? Also, projects like MakerDAO maybe putting a flag in the ground and saying, hey, we're gonna be clean energy. Right? This is going to be like ESG-friendly, environmentally-friendly currency. We also see projects like David talked to a project called KlimaDAO doing a little something on this too. And I feel like this totally disarms them and totally flips the narrative right? among politicians and their support for this system. Rather than Bitcoin, proof of work, which they've seen for the last 10 years, we've got like an Ethereum system that consumes very little energy, almost nothing. And also, we are actively improving you know, the climate in all of these various ways. So that's super exciting. The second thing that I think is kind of maybe unique to Ethereum culture right now, which I absolutely love, is I feel like very much Bitcoin culture is a bit more like that New Zealand bunker that you were talking about earlier, right? It's like, where's my Bitcoin Citadel, right? I'm just gonna buy up this Citadel with all the Bitcoin I've hauled that's gone to the moon, and I'm gonna wait for the world to burn because it's gonna burn. Whereas the Ethereum ethos is like, hey, we don't want the world to burn. We have these coordination tools and this coordination technology. We can be an active part of the solution of putting out the fires and make sure the world doesn't go to hell. Like that to me is incredibly important and something that I see in Ethereum culture, particularly the past few years, that is like completely a 180 difference than previous Bitcoin maximalist type culture. We don't want citadels. We want like solar punk cities. That's what we're aiming for. And uh, I think that's awesome. So plus one on that, sir. And I hope other DeFi projects start to explore this area. I think it's fertile ground. Anything else you want to say on that? I've got one last question around your post. And this is in respect to uh, new tokenomics for Maker that you also kind of proposed. We don't have time to get into all the details because I know that's a huge thing to unwrap. But um, you know, tie off anything else you want to say about clean money and then give us a sneak peek, just some quick bullet points on what some of the new tokenomics behind Maker might look like in the maybe medium to future, the thing that you're proposing anyway. Yeah, so, well, so, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of like Klimadal and, and non, there's a whole range of extremely innovative um, like climate-focused fo- blockchain projects out there. Uh, that I think, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's just happening and now they're really starting to pop up which is probably related to basically the, the trajectory of the climate as we now sort of experience it. Um, but, I, you know, I think that there's huge synergy between many of these different like climate aligned projects. And the, the best possible example is Klimadao uh, and then sort of the, the clean money direction of Maker, because basically Maker is, is really like what, what I'm proposing is that Maker really focuses on sort of building out the infrastructure needed uh, in a in sort of a decarbonized world, right? And what Klimadao is really focusing on is basically trying to to sort of incentivize people to do that in a sense. So there's actually this really interesting synergy where the kind of of um, of assets and the kind of collateral that Maker would want to would would um, uh, put money into in, in, in sort of creating clean money would be would be exactly the kind of assets that massively benefit from a higher carbon price in the carbon uh, trading systems which actually Klimadao is, is uh, going to contribute towards so yeah I'm a, I'm, 
I think, I mean, I'm both, I'm really excited about that project specifically because I just love the idea of putting like crazy tokenomics and then just putting them towards a, a good purpose. I feel like that's the, that's really, that's the way to do it basically. So I'm a, I love that. And then also the fact that they're just, I mean, it's, I think it reveals something about, it actually goes all the way back to this, the coordination, coordination problem and this question of like, you know, focusing on yourself or working together and how when people are aligned around this kind of common goal, it's just very, it's very natural that you would have all these synergies would emerge from doing that. Right. So I, I plan to, to just research a lot more on, on the various um, initiatives out there and try to figure out how maker can really tap into and sort of collaborate with those projects, which is often the case with maker, right? Because one thing we really, can do is is uh, use other other assets as collateral, for instance, and that's a very sort of obvious way to to synergize. And yeah, like I mean, yeah, that, I basically can't. I don't think I can really get too much into the tokenomics, basically, because that's like its own crazy uh, topic, and we've been going on for what like two hours now. <laughs> so, but but the basic idea is that I don't, you know, bind burn is like pro- possibly the oldest tokenomics ever, basically. And I think it has some like it has some um, yeah it just has a bunch of downsides that uh, one really obvious downside that I'm I think is very bad is if the price of MKR is very high it kind of like buy and burn will just waste money by sort of buying the top right which is I really dislike the specific characteristic because like there's no it's not even like a you know it, it, we're not even talking about something that's rational to do but just looks bad to the market we're talking about something that's straight up not very rational it's just not a very good idea to be buying and burning uh, tokens if the, if the price is high basically um but more importantly it's just DeFi has really created this tremendous innovation um and and uh, i think you know and i was basically you know i just think that it's time for maker to to try to tap into that and um so I came up with a system where the idea is basically to incentivize people to lock up their MKR tokens for a very long time and then get an ability to directly borrow die at preferential terms from the system when they do this, which sort of would feel like a like a dividend type of, of cash flow, right? Where you're just getting getting cash continuously. But the difference is it's actually you're borrowing money from the system with your MKR. You're not actually getting that that money. Um and yeah, just there's a lot of implications of that, but I, I think, I think basically that's based on everything I've studied and, and learned from the DeFi ecosystem. This is like the most powerful tokenomics engine that is entirely set up to focus on basically long-term thinking and long-term community participation. And, uh, and that's what I love about like tokenomics, right? Is that you can actually code economic interactions and, and monitor, you know, cash flows and have them directly affect human behavior, which I think is, is, you know, that's the kind of stuff we need to tap into if we're going to try to, you know, turn the ship around with regards to the global climate change and, you know, our broken financial systems and all of that, right? So so I'm very excited to dive into that. That is super cool. I think people forget that, um, you know, tokens and DeFi projects can actually change their token economics and actually can improve their token economics. And if listeners want to find out a bit more about what Rune is proposing on the governance forms, it's under the title Sagittarius, I believe. And uh, you, you can check that out for yourself. But Rune, it's been a pleasure to have you. And we've really enjoyed this conversation. Maybe we've covered so much. I know you're very clearly a deep thinker. You've got a lot of wisdom for us. 
you're a DeFi OG. So I want to kind of close with this question. What do you think of everything that's going on in DeFi and NFTs today? Do you have any hot takes for us? Do you have any advice for some of the early projects or the users? Just anything you would leave our listeners with? Um, I, I mean, I, th- I think that uh, I'm, I've come around to this idea of the, the super cycle, right? That there is really is this, um, you know, we're seeing this more mainstream type of adoption into crypto. Um, so I think it's like now is the time to really be being crypto basically and, and not ignore it. Uh, like, yeah, I mean, um, NFTs is, is something where, I mean, I just didn't get it. And I really, you know, I also didn't get all the modern DeFi and all the tokenomics and sort of all of these things. I was basically like the boomer that just, you know, <laughs> didn't get it and, and sort of uh, thought it was going to, it was going to fade up, fade away. But, but I think there's really been, you know, there's some fundamental value and some real sort of powerful potential that's being uncovered here that like, I don't think that the, sort of the industry really knows exactly what it is yet. And, and, uh, once we figure that out, that's going to be kind of the, the, I guess the dot-com bubble moment and, and sort of the post dot-com bubble, uh, era will be basically when, when we sort of get a, uh, you know, the real understanding of what is it that actually makes NFTs valuable, for instance, and what is it that actually makes the, you know, tokenomics be beneficial to real projects rather than being sort of Ponzi schemes, right? And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's just so incredibly complex and mind blowing what is, what has occurred now that I, you know, that, that you, it's every, you know, it, you need you really need to sort of uh, study a lot and and uh, pay a lot of attention and uh, be very critical i think to to not fall into some sort of trap when inevitably there there's a lot of uh, whatever a new bubble or whatever's going to happen next absolutely well Rin christensen we will end it there it's been a pleasure to have you on bankless thanks for joining us for this conversation thanks so much for having me All right, Bankless listeners, Rune's advice was get in now. I can echo that, whether that's just from an investment perspective, whether that's trying these DeFi protocols as we advocate every single time on Bankless, or whether that's maybe getting a job in crypto. Go join a DAO. Go see what's up. Go tap into a Discord channel. Some action items for you today. References from our conversation today. You can read Rune's Clean Money post. We'll include a link in the show notes. We were talking about that. Also, that hot thread on multi-sigs. We were talking about one layer one to rule them all. We'll include that thread in the show note. We'll also include the SG proposal to Maker in the governance forms. You can check out all of that. Of course, guys, none of this has been financial advice. It never is on Bankless. DeFi is risky. ETH is risky. Bitcoin is risky. This whole thing is risky. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks for joining us on The Bankless Journey.